Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 8th, 2017. On this week's show, Howard Bryant will join us to discuss the history of racism in Boston sports and whether it's fair to invoke that history when talking about the slurs directed towards the Orioles' Adam Jones at Fenway Park. We'll then chat with Damon Young of Very Smart Brothers about what Damon calls the black basketball dad and how LeVar Ball fits into and overwhelms that archetype. David Epstein of ProPublica will also be here to help us assess Nike's just barely failed attempt to engineer a sub two-hour marathon. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Before we start, just want to note that basketball is my favorite sport. The NBA is my favorite pro sports league. But the NBA just needs to come harder. The playoffs have been a disappointment. The Cavs and the Warriors are both undefeated thus far. The finals three-match seems inevitable. I just coined that on the fly. And I just really want to be talking about the NBA right now, but these other topics were just more interesting. You don't have to apologize. I'm not apologizing. I'm, I'm explaining to myself and to the people and just urging the NBA to do better, be better. You don't have to explain to the people. You just explain to yourself. <laughs> okay. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, the aforementioned Howard Bryant and our colleague June Thomas will convene to discuss ESPN's Sunday morning institution, The Sports Reporters, which just ended its 29-year run on the network this weekend. Join Slate Plus for $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Last Monday, Baltimore Orioles outfielder Adam Jones, who is black, told reporters after the Orioles game against the Red Sox at Fenway Park that a fan threw a bag of peanuts at him and that he was, quote, called the N-word a handful of times. The Red Sox and the mayor of Boston apologized to Jones the next day. He also got a standing ovation at Fenway when he came up to bat in the subsequent game. The Red Sox franchise banned a fan for life who had reportedly been overheard saying a racial slur at Monday's game. In the following week, current and former players like CeCe Sabathia and Doug Glanville have talked about the racism that they've experienced at Fenway and in Boston more broadly. Joining us to discuss is Howard Bryant. Howard is a columnist for ESPN the magazine. He's also a weekend correspondent for NPR, and he's the author of the 2002 book, Shut Out, A Story of Race and Baseball in Boston. Thanks a lot for joining us, Howard. Thanks for having me. So this conversation about race and racism in Boston sports is one that comes up periodically. And after the Jones incident, um, it seemed like the, the kind of back and forth that we were seeing um, online was 
about how much we should think about Boston's history when we um, are talking about what happened in Fenway last week. I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'm curious for your take on that. Well, I mean, my my thought on it had been one that it it wasn't necessarily surprising, but I think when we talk about history in general, I mean, most people can't remember or don't know what happened last Thursday. Never mind the backstory that informed so many of these incidences when they happen. Uh, to me, I felt like one of the big stories or one of the big parts of the story was how quickly the the Boston fan or the the sports fan there immediately began to retrench into this sort of Tom Brady, Spygate, Deflategate, us against the world. <laughs> they're, they're all coming after us again. Instead of paying attention to what actually happened, I mean, Adam Jones didn't do anything except go to work. And yet the Red Sox fans took it as though they were the victims of, what, of, of the entire incident. And also demanded proof that it had well, happened rather than a, believing Jones, like thinking that Jones might want to make it up for some reason. Well, and that's part of that's part of why Boston has the reputation it has. It's a very well-deserved reputation, by the way. It's not like this is something, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is taking place in Boston. This is a well-deserved, decades-long reputation. I mean, let's not forget, you know, and people like to say, oh, well, why are you bringing up ancient history? We know that Jackie Robinson tried out for the Red Sox and was humiliated in 1945. We know that instead of becoming the first team to integrate, the Red Sox became the last in 1959 with Pumsey Green. But why are you bringing up ancient history? Well, we're not talking about ancient history. We're talking about something that happened last Monday. And also earlier in January, you had David Price say that even as a member of the home team, he endured racial slurs from from the fans that are supposed to be cheering him, except when he's not pitching well. And the Red Sox didn't sign their first black free agent until 1992. And then all of these things have gone on and on and on. It's, it's a continuum. And that's the reason why we pay attention to it. If, if we had this gap between the the Massachusetts Council for Discrimination suing the Red Sox in 1959 and harmony in between, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It just keeps going. And it's not just a sports conversation either. A lot of no, the, no. The, the image of Boston and race is shaped not just by Pumpsy Green and the failure to, to sign a black player or to sign black free agents or Bill Russell's calling uh, Boston a flea market of racism or the sort of continuous stories from players who have played there about how they were treated in the city. It's also common ground and busing in the yeah. 1970s and the, 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 the makeup of the fan base and the ballpark, which is vastly, and the, vastly white. And the city. And that, that's the thing. I mean, as a, as a Boston native, as a kid who was part of that busing story in the mid 1970s, that shaped that shaped not just you know the white attitudes, it shaped the black attitudes. It shaped a lot of my, members of my family who thought, hey, I didn't think we were like this and the true colors have been shown. And it's not just busing because even that was 40 years ago. Then you've got the the Stewart case in the 90s and the Mary Ellen, the Mary Ellen McCormick housing project in, 19, in, in 89 and 90 when the, the black family finally had the nerve to integrate South Boston and they <laughs> riddled their house with bullets. I mean, this is something that is is well deserved. And I think the other thing too is that the makeup of Boston, Boston's a tough place. It's a tough city. It's got a small black population. It's got a very small, if non-existent black middle class. So you don't necessarily have that sort of balance that you have in other cities. You don't have a lot of black culture there. It's a very, uh, it's, it, it, it is a becoming a majority minority city in numbers, but not in culture. So the racism of, you know, the, Fans at Fenway Park is sort of one part of the conversation. As you alluded to a few minutes ago, um, the ownership of the Red Sox under the Yaki family for so many years, um, you know, that was, you know, from the top, this was a racist organization. You mentioned the Jackie Robinson tryout, the farcical tryout in 1945, the lack of free agents, the last team to integrate. What do you think about the franchise now and the way it's run um, compared to back then. They were very quick, it seemed, to apologize and to um, you know ban this fan. Is that reflective of the values of ownership today? Well, I think it's reflective of, of finally 
finally reaching the breaking point that, that they recognize that this can't define your ball club. I think that when John Henry and Larry Lucchino and Tom Warner bought the team in, in January of 2002, I had a sit down with John Henry and I remember him telling me specifically that this is a demarcating line in this franchise. What we were then, we will no longer be. And we were in his office and he told me this and he told me that the, the Red Sox were going to be different and the Red Sox have been cosmetically very different. Uh, I don't think that the the Red Sox as an organization are necessarily hostile toward African-Americans or African-American fans wanting to come to the ballpark the way it used to be. When we were kids, believe me, I mean, growing up in Dorchester, nobody went to Red Sox games because we knew it was a place where you were going to go out and, and you could get beat up. I mean, we all knew that, and especially in the bleachers. So it was not a place where you were welcome to be. Uh, the Red Sox organization now obviously moved very quickly, but there's one area where they haven't moved very quickly, and it was... It's in the dog whistling of the of the talk radio. I mean, Boston Boston sports radio is the unspoken part of this entire story. The the it is a you know the 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 leading radio station there. It's a it's a racist station, and especially the morning show. They the, they get all upset when something happens, and the reputation continues. When you've got guys like Kurt Schilling going on the air questioning whether Adam Jones is telling the truth, that's part of the problem. And that station is where Jerry Callahan. No, was. absolutely. And absolutely. Callahan was one of the on-air uh, sports talk guys who who said, "What if Adam Jones made this up?" Well, exactly, and that's the dog whistle, and right. that's the stuff that, and and everybody has to take a piece of this, and that includes a lot of the writers out there who who talk about how awful that show is and talk about how awful it is that that they people have to deal with it but then they go on the program and then they take money from the program and then they go out and they 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 say one thing but where do people get hurt they get hurt in their wallet and the red sox are are most uh complicit in that because if anybody could have used any sort of of their resources where did sam kennedy go where did where did these interviews go they immediately went to wei and so because of that there is no financial price that those guys are paying and that's why this stuff continues this the the reputation that the city has had is is really what is at issue here howard isn't it it's that players Black players will go to Boston reluctantly. I mean, Kevin Garnett, when he was with the Timberwolves, said he didn't want to be traded to the Celtics. He no, ends up going right. to Boston, and he has he is beloved. Um, D. Brown was 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 manhandled by the police, but he at gunpoint <laughs> at gunpoint. But he went on to talk fondly about Boston and defend the city after his career ended. Um, so it's this hardening of this perception. There are real episodes here. I mean, CeCe Sabathia said every black player will tell you that they hear it from Boston fans. Like, this is how it is. When we were, when I was a kid, when I was growing up there, my guidance counselor used to tell me that if you wanted to make a career, whatever that occupation was going to be, being black in Boston and New England area, you had to leave, that you were not going to be given the opportunity to climb through the ranks because the city was too clannish. It was too Irish. There were too many favors. And this was a this was a white guidance counselor telling me this, that it wasn't going to happen for you. However, if you went away and you built a reputation somewhere else and then came back to Boston and the city would claim you as one of its own. Mm -hmm. And and that actually has been my experience. When I came back to Boston to in 2002 with the Boston Herald, I, I had a I had a great time in Boston. It was good to be home. I hadn't I didn't go to college in Boston. I went to school in Philadelphia at Temple University and uh, San Francisco State. And then when I came back to Boston as a professional, all of those opportunities that I said I couldn't have gotten as an apprentice in Boston, as a professional, I did. And so this is something, as, as you were saying earlier, that isn't just a sports thing. It's about, it, it's about opportunity and it's about who gets to make it and who doesn't. And when you talk to HR people in all corporations in Boston, the very first thing that they will tell you is, is minority retention is one of the most difficult things they have there because it's a tough place to live. I do want to mention again your book because it is the definitive book length treatment of this issue. And I thought maybe we could end um, by having you talk about an interview or somebody that you spoke with for the book, uh, a figure who maybe folks aren't thinking about or talking about now who perhaps exemplifies this story in your mind. 
Well, sure. Well, I think that one of the things that I always, when I did that book 15 years ago, one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I wanted to do it was because the framework of the conversation had always been through the lens of Tom Yaki. Was Tom Yaki a racist? Wasn't he a racist? And I really couldn't care less about it. I, I thought that let's give people a chance to speak who haven't had a chance to speak. We're talking about Tom Yaki, who you know died in 1976, but let's talk to the players who actually lived this. And I think one of the guys you just brought up is 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 uh, symbolic of a lot of this, and it's Ellis Burks. Ellis Burks loved playing in Boston. He loved being in Boston. He didn't like the environment of it. He loved the history, except for the fact that the treatment was very difficult for him. And, and the the residing superstar there, Jim Rice, used to tell him all the time, get your six years in and get the hell out of Boston. That's That's the Hall of Fame Jim Rice telling a rookie player about his prospects here. And that that really does, I mean, we all talk about learning from the from the stars when you get there. And I think that is so different from someone like say Pedro Martinez and David Ortiz, who, you know, 20 years later ended up becoming legends there. And so there is a growth process, but the attitude for African Americans and not Latin Americans is a big difference there, but for African Americans, it had always been that if you came to that city, you weren't going to be able to enjoy it the way that the other that other players would. And that's the Boston challenge. And I think that going forward, when I think about someone like Mookie Betts or Jackie Bradley Jr. or some of the or David Price, the black players now, but especially those two because they're homegrown. These incidences may very well grow and and make a guy like Mookie Betts say, well, maybe I don't want to resign here. And now Boston is once again at that competitive disadvantage where, like in the 1990s, where you had Kirby Puckett and Gary Sheffield and David Justice have clauses written into their contracts where they couldn't be traded to Boston. That's not what the city wants. Right. Ultimately, others have said this. It wasn't a curse that prevented the Boston Red Sox from winning the World Series for 86 years. It was the organization's latent racism. Well, it was a, and, and let's face it, anything that comes before winning is losing. And if you don't have the best players, and if the best players don't want to come there, if you don't have any interest in them because of something other than their talent, eventually you're going to lose. Howard Bryant is the author of Shut Out, a story of race and baseball in Boston. He's also a columnist for ESPN, the magazine, and a weekend correspondent for NPR. Thanks so much, Howard. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When we last left LeVar Ball, the relentlessly smack-talking basketball paterfamilias and wannabe entrepreneur was saying he was going to get a $1 billion shoe deal for his son, Alonzo, who's going to be a top pick in this year's NBA draft. And his other sons, LiAngelo and LaMelo, I think they were going to be in that billion-dollar deal as well. Also, he said he could beat Michael Jordan in a game of one-on-one. Plus, I think he said he's the one true God. I mean, they're just sort of escalating claims. Last week, in the absence of that billion-dollar deal, which seems like it will materialize when the value of the U.S. dollar is destroyed by Zimbabwe-esque inflation, the Ball family released its first shoe, the Zo2, under its own Big Baller brand imprint. It costs $495, which is $320 more than LeBron's latest Nike shoe retailed for last year. Uh, LeVar Ball, because he is LeVar Ball, responded to criticism by saying, I figure that's what the shoe is worth. When you are your own owner, you can come up with any price you want. And with respect to the $220 Big Baller brand sandals, he added, Prada and Gucci are selling theirs for what they want. Ours is better than that. It feels better. Joining us now is Damon Young, who writes for the website Very Smart Brothers. He's also a columnist for GQ, and he's working on a book of essays for Echo. Damon wrote a great piece last week on LeVar Ball and Damon's own dad that we reprinted on Slate uh, with the title, I Love What LeVar Ball Stands For, I Hate LeVar Ball. Welcome to the show, Damon. Oh, thanks for having me. 
One thing that came to mind when I read your piece is that it was an inversion of don't hate the player, hate the game. You're saying mm-hmm. you love how LeVar Ball is tweaking the basketball establishment, and you'd love it even more if he wasn't such an asshole. Is that yeah. is that a fair statement? It is. It is. You know, and I um, it's it's one of those arguments where you you you're for the principle, um, principle of the situation, but not necessarily for the person. And yeah, I Lavar Ball reminds me of a lot of fathers that I encountered on those AU trips and in those gyms and you know at those courts. You know, in I feel like the soccer mom, you know, is has a place and um and I guess the American lexicon. But the the basketball dad also needs a place because the basketball dad is out there trying to coach the team, trying to play for the team. <laughs> um and, and, and again, not obviously not all basketball dads, hashtag not all basketball dads, but basketball dads <laughs> like LeVar Ball, who you know, who don't, who don't respect the line that exists between what parents are supposed to do and what your children are doing. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they don't even blur the line. That line just is non-existent. And, and so I, again, while I do appreciate what he is attempting to do, I just, I just feel like he's a bully and a blowhard and I just don't mess with him at all. Personally, you tell uh, very personal stories in the essay that you wrote um, about growing up with your own father. You ended up getting a college basketball scholarship. You're obviously a very good player. Um, He was a visible force in your basketball development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you write about the basketball dad, what is it that differentiates him? I mean, is it what is it about the blackness in particular? How is the black basketball dad different from the insufferable white baseball dad or the insufferable Latino soccer dad? Well, um, I, I made the race distinction one because I'm, I'm in Pittsburgh and, you know, Pittsburgh is, you know, so white that I think Rick James once tried to snort it um, a few years ago <laughs> um, when he was still alive. So it's, it's, like one of the whitest cities in America. Important to make the um, distinction that it was while he was alive. Metropolitan area, yeah. And and so my experience might not be the universal experience for for all black basketball players, but I know that with my dad, a lot of these AAU teams I had to try out for, and a lot of these leagues I played in, I would often be the only black kid in these, um, you know, at these tryouts or in these leagues or you know in these gyms, and especially when I was playing. Um, from sixth to eighth grade, I uh, went to a school, St. Bart's, which is a private Catholic school um, in the suburbs of uh, Pittsburgh. And, you know, I, I could count on one hand a number of times we played against another black player at St. Bart's. Now, we had a couple on our team, but, you know, we're from Penn Hills, which is a close suburb of Pittsburgh. We're sometimes traveling out to Butler County, which is, you know, um, pretty far away and pretty country. And so going in those environments and having my dad as like my bouncer and as my protector, it's, it's just a very vital role that he played there. And, and so, yeah, the black basketball dad, along with being all the things that, you know, basketball dads are, which is the drill instructor, the, you know, the coach, the, the person that you play one-on-one all the time and blocks your shots until, you know, like my dad, who stopped playing me once I figured once he figured out that I could beat him. Um, so you have all of that, and then you attach the race part to it, um, where it's like, you know what, I'm not going to let these uh, these white people here take advantage of my son. I'm going to make sure that he gets the best opportunity that he um, that no one tries to get the better of him, and 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 if he and if he doesn't succeed. It's not because of his race. It's because he just wasn't good enough. Andre Agassi's dad was an asshole. Todd Marinovich's dad was an asshole. There are female tennis players who have gotten restraining orders against their fathers, who Mm. were their coaches too. Is there something about LeVar Ball's messaging to black athletes or black writers or black people that makes you uncomfortable? Um, I, 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 I think that LeVar Ball being black actually 
makes me want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, so it's not even necessarily uncomfortability. It's more like, you know what, because he's black and because he's fighting these, these large corporations and the NCAA and, and whoever else, then, then yeah, I, I, I am, I am compelled to pull for him. And, and the thing is, I was actually mostly ambivalent about him, but more on the pull for him side until I read that, uh, there was a USA Today piece, um, a couple months ago where it, it talked about the season that the, the Chino Hills basketball season basketball team had last year and how LeVar Ball was just basically just a bully. Right, where, and, where his other sons play. Yeah, where his other sons play and, and ended up, you know, that coach I just read last week um, was let go. And they lost, I think, two games. And so just reading stuff like that and that that actually made the distaste uh, more concrete. But, you know, I, I, I was before that more in his corner because and because of you know just uh just an inherent you know affinity for 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 black people who who do something to fight the status quo but he's just the wrong guy so if we're thinking about lavar ball there are a bunch of different roles he's played in his kids development and his kids life. He was their coach. He taught them to shoot in this very distinctive way. Um, He's also their hype man and their manager. And to me, the thing, you know, where you start to question him is when it looks like he's trying to take too much credit for his kids' success Mm -hmm. or to try to impose himself on the story of his kids, um, you know, making it to the NBA and kind of not, you know, moving back or shrinking away when it seems like it's the time for Lonzo and to a lesser extent, LiAngelo and LaMelo to really be getting the attention for their talents and what they've done. You know, it, it's it, it's funny that you brought up their, their um, un- unorthodox shooting motions. Um, yes. With uh, now, Leangelo has a pretty standard shot, but Lamelo and Lonzo, you know, they have two of the most unique jump shots that I've ever seen. And it, the irony is that they shoot like guys who were not taught by their dad how to shoot. Like they, they, they shoot the ball like kids who just p- start picking up a ball and just start shooting. However, they could get the ball to the hoop because they weren't strong enough to you know, shoot it over their head or shoot, you know, a more standard jump shot. And it's, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but it feels like the, the, the kids who had dads or had someone, some sort of instruction, someone who come in and say, Hey, you know what? Th- that set shot is cool, but you need to shoot the ball over your head. You need to you, shoot the ball like this. You wrote about that in your piece about how your dad yeah. taught you to, to shoot. Yeah. And, and, you know, for all the, you know, for everything that uh, LeVar Ball has, you know, said that he's done for his kids, he very obviously didn't do something for them that is going to hold them back. Like, I, I saw a pretty extensive video about Lonzo Ball and about the hitch and the shooting motion. Um, it was uh, it was on YouTube a couple, uh, a couple months ago and how, you know, playing in the NBA now, those guys, he, how, how is he going to get that shot off in traffic? And... Again, I you see him, and I, I feel like LeVar Ball, again, is so focused on taking credit for the big successes um, in their lives that there are certain, I guess, intricacies about the actual game and about actually being a great basketball player that he overlooked. Right, and a lot of it feels like a con, like he's trying to take advantage of a gullible system. You know, it's the sort of the, the, the basketball equivalent of, of Donald Trump. We're going we're gonna to just totally blind the public into believing this. We're just going to say shit and pretend that it's true. My kids are the best. My shoes are the best. Of course, he won't say who's making the shoes. Looks like he's been lying about the initial sales numbers. $495 is a totally made-up number. We don't even know where these things are going to be made. <laughs> so you're saying they're going to be balls. They're going to be ball steaks soon. <laughs> <laughs> there will be the ball water too. 
big big ball of water. Um, the 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 impact on his children though is you'd think would be the foremost thing in this guy's mind, but it doesn't sure feel that way. It feels like the bravado is great. Telling the NCAA to fuck off, telling Nike to fuck off feels good on a intellectual level, but on a practical one that, that, that not knowing where to stop being the basketball dad and start being the, 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 the caretaker of these kids future seems to fade away. Yeah. And there's this, I don't know, there's like this awkward space that, you know, where you have Lonzo ball specifically in his talent and, and LeVar balls, bombast and this like awkward intersection where, um, Lonzo is good enough. And, and the youngest son is actually really good too. And they're good. And they don't need a hype man. Like they would, if they were orphans, they would, Lonzo Ball would still be a projected lottery pick. Some of the praise or some of the, I, I guess, the positive feedback that I've seen online about um, LeVar Ball talks about that, about how, you know, right now he is, you know, making sure that the shoe companies and that the NBA and whoever else don't take advantage of, uh, of Lonzo. But again, Lonzo would be at worst, the fourth or fifth pick in this draft without him. Like if LeVar Ball dropped dead two months ago, Lonzo Ball is still going to be one of the first names called in the NBA lottery. Um, and so there's that. But then there's also the fact that while Lonzo is definitely good, I don't want to minimize or downplay his talent. He's not LeBron. And I, I do feel like, and we've seen this already, where you know, I don't know if he's good enough to withstand the extra attention and the extra scrutiny that his dad is going to get him. Right. What did you write in the piece? I'm certain De'Aaron Fox isn't going to be the last guard to put a, le- yeah. a little extra effort into washing Lonzo on the court just because of his dad's bombast. Yeah. I mean, the last time we saw Lonzo in a competitive game, I mean, De'Aaron Fox destroyed him. And, you know... You want to say that players at that level, you know, are are not affected by stuff all the court. They're already motivated, they're already self motivated. But you know, we've read enough about that. Those type of athletes, well, they'll take any perceived or imagined slight or anything to motivate them. And you know, I I do not know if Lavar is putting Lonzo in a good spot because you know he's he's going into the most competitive position in the NBA. And, you know, De'Aaron Fox is hearing all of this and doing this stuff. I mean, what's what's Steph Curry going to do? What's Damian Lillard going to do? What's Isaiah Thomas, John Wall, Kyrie? I mean, Lonzo's already better than Steph Curry, remember? <laughs> that was yeah. that was one of uh, LeVar's uh, yeah. statements. Before we go, um, I want to get your thoughts on Big Baller brand. Like all great brands before it, it has the word brand in it. So you know that it's a mm-hmm. brand. Um, I feel like the conversation among the fashion cognoscenti is that the shoes look like butt, I believe is the, the technical term. I'm wondering what your, what your view on the, the style is and whether you think they're going to sell. Okay. They're not, they are not terrible shoes. Like okay. I, I have seen, I have seen worse looking shoes before. Um, worse, worse looking shoes with Nike signs or with Reebok signs or whatever on them. Um, but they, but I, I, I don't want to take credit for this. I saw, I forgot who tweeted this. Um, so I didn't, I'm not thinking this myself, but someone on Twitter said that the only way I would pay four ninety five for them is if they came in a box with $475 in them. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, these are not the worst shoes ever. I, I think they're actually better looking than the, uh, than the orthopedic hospital shoes that Under Armour made for Steph Curry. But, um, but yeah, I just, I, I feel like he might've been better served going like the Shaq shoe or the strawberry shoe route where you're, you know, you're selling your shoes for, you're, you're presenting them as a, as a, as a lower cost alternative instead of trying to make them like this luxury brand. And, and I think that right there would have been truly like revolutionary or truly, you know, you want to talk about abandoning the status quo, then having your son have his own brand, and have this brand be something that kids, any kid, 
um, wherever can can afford that right there seems to be the most I don't know if he was truly committed to being like this um, this firebrand and like this revolutionary then doing that might have been might have been the best option. Damon Young is an unpaid consultant for Big Baller Brand. He's <laughs> also a writer for the website Very Smart Brothers. He's a columnist for GQ, and he's working on a book of essays for Echo. Damon, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On Saturday morning in Italy, Eliud Kipchoge of Kenya ran 26.2 miles, faster than anyone had ever covered that distance, crossing the finish line in two hours, zero minutes, and 25 seconds. Kipchoge did not set a world record, however, as he was competing under what I like to call freaky-deaky conditions as part of Nike's attempt to engineer the world's first sub-two-hour marathon. Joining us now to discuss is David Epstein. He's a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book, The Sports Gene. It's great to have you back on the show, Dave. Thanks for having me. Now, I usually, out of politeness, will go to our guest first. But in this case, Stefan, uh, you talked about this effort on Hang Up a couple weeks ago with Alex Hutchinson of Runner's World. I'm going to reward you oh, for getting you, up Josh. early to watch uh, this over the weekend. We're not going to sleep, actually, because <laughs> it started at 11.45 p.m. Friday night there on we the go. East Coast. So uh, let us know what happened and what your thoughts were. I was mesmerized by this thing. I stayed up till you know, 2 in the morning watching the race live. Um, Nike's the production value as a television program was pretty high. The interviews were terrible, mostly, but some of the pre-recorded stuff was great. I became a fan of Elliot Kipchoge through his, his his interviews and watching these guys in the lab. Um, and then the race itself turned out to be totally compelling. It was suspenseful. There were tens of thousands of people watching as a sporting event. I loved it, even though you knew that it was also a marketing event. Do you agree, David? Uh, I agree with some of that. I mean, there are... You know, there were parts like in the production, mainly when they talked about science, that I thought were a little uh, odd from from the contention early on that this was like Roger Bannister. You know, they, they ran it uh, when they did as sort of a tribute right. to Roger Bannister, same time, of, uh, same day that he broke the four minute mile. I said, well, he was told, you know, this is about pushing the human limits. He was told that his heart would explode by scientists and stuff like I've asked Roger Bannister that a million times, like nobody told him that. Um, so there was some... You know, from that to the four percent improvement of the shoes, which no way because we'd be seeing much better marathon times if that were true. So I was I was a little put off by some of the scientific discussion. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I thought um, I thought it's a it's an interesting thing to attempt, and and I did think like the lasers were pretty cool, and the way it played out, just sort of seeing how long uh, Elliot Kipchoge could kind of keep his finger in the flame, as distance runners sometimes say, was very very suspenseful. So the question here, I think, for a lot of folks who are not in the Nike marketing department is which of the sort of allowances that were made here to try to break this record to get under two hours were in the realm of reasonable and didn't distort the attempt to such a degree to make it kind of a mockery and which ones were on the other end of the continuum where it just felt unreasonable and unfair based on the standards of marathon running. So can you tell us like one or two things that fall in each category, which things seemed like totally reasonable and which things seemed unreasonable? Um, For me, I think the sort of one of the, uh, one of the factors that made it not 
eligible for a typical world record was the delivery of their drinks and carbohydrate solutions by people on bikes so they didn't have to veer to the side of the road and pick something up and they could have stuff whenever they wanted. Um, I, that, I think that's fine with me. Um, I don't, I don't have a, a big problem with that. I think, you know, maybe they should do something like that in normal marathons. The shoes are kind of a black box. I don't know what to say about those because the footwear that revolutionized speed skating, for example, is the so-called clap skate where it hinges at the toe. So the person doesn't have to lift their foot off the ground to reposition it, or it doesn't have to be off the ground as long. They can keep applying pressure to the ice mm -hmm. while repositioning their foot. And I assume you, I bet you could do that with a shoe, that there are hinge designs you could make with a shoe. At the same time, I feel like if people saw that, they'd say like, well, that's definitely too far. So the question is, how close can you get to that sort of thing without making it very obvious, right? Like the, the biggest advantage, I think, was probably the drafting from the people behind the humans and the car and the giant clock. Um, right. There were, but, there were six pace setters who alternated, uh, took turns pacing the runner so that they could keep up that same pace. And on top of the Tesla was like a big scoreboard. It was a clock, but it was like a big wall that shielded the runners, too. Right. And I mean, and the humans, of course, they help also with taking away sort of the psychological burden of pacing. But, you know, Justin Gatlin, uh, I think when he was suspended, I think it was when he was suspended on a Japanese TV show, ran like 9.4 and 100 meters with an industrial fan behind him, basically. <laughs> right. And, and this is similar. This is just changing the wind that they're facing. Yeah. So except if you put a fan behind them, it would look like a farce. So I think the question was, how do you make this seem as not like an industrial fan as possible, even though in some ways it kind of is. The South African sports scientist, Russ Tucker, in a piece that he posted on Monday, um, argued that uh, based on some calculations that, that, that another uh, uh, running scientist had done, that the drafting was worth 20 to 30% of efficiency, which he said equates to an advantage of between a minute 30 and 220 in the race. And he said, then if you throw in the shoes, you know, maybe 10 seconds gets us to around 230 in benefits for Kipchoge. So his two hour and 25 second marathon is the really the equivalent of like 202.55, which is right around the world record, the existing world record. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some guesswork in there for sure. sure. I, I probably would have gone a little more shoes, a little less uh, drafting, because mm -hmm. I think you can make a difference with materials. And one of the interesting things that's come out of this has been that the shoes seem to provide an, like a very different um, efficiency advantage depending on who's running in them. And this has turned out to be the case for kind of anything that you can you can do with people when you try to improve them. There's this highly variable response. Um so that's just a total black box. We just don't know. But my guess would be I probably wouldn't have guessed um, that the drafting was quite that much of an advantage, but a, but a lot, I think. And also, I mean, just the like anyone who's run, you know, I was a competitive runner and anyone who's run competitively just knows you love guys that will go out really fast because it relieves this psychological burden of having to set the pace and you just sort of follow. So I think that's also a big help, too. And normally a runner wouldn't have had that. Uh, as long in the race because you would need a, a group like a phalanx of other people who are running that same pace and that doesn't happen when you're setting the world record basically two thoughts first we do need to give nike credit for subtlety for not putting on the clock just the scrolling message this is actually a giant sign that we're putting here to stop the wind so i mean just points points for them for for subtlety the second point is wonder if you guys agree. Um, Ross Tucker made it very clear in his piece, and I think some others have, that the reason that Kipchoge came so close, maybe the biggest reason is that Kipchoge is awesome, right. that he is capable of running, of setting a world record under normal conditions. I think he's won seven of the eight competitive marathons that he's been in. And I'm wondering, um, Dave first and then Stefan, do you feel like this record attempt maybe perversely distracts from how good he is as an individual? That, that's a good question. I think for, I think there was a lot of attention on this event. Like I got a lot of emails and questions from people who don't really have much interest in running normally. And so for them, I think absolutely not. Um, and and e even for people in the running community, I don't think most people thought he would run that fast. So I, and, and to see the other two guys uh, fall off, the way that they did, um, you know, and Zersene Tedeschi has the, has the best running economy ever measured in a lab. Um, 
I think actually probably strengthen the idea of how great he is. That said, um, I think to to really solidify that for good, he'd, he'd want to set a regulation world record. And there aren't that most guys don't have that many of this kind of effort in the career tank when you get the right weather, the right competitors, you know, no injury through your training and so on and so forth. So, you know, I do think it adds to the chances that he won't ever get that that perfect regulation effort, which seems now only to happen in Berlin, basically. So you have like one chance a year and hope everything falls into place. And that's later this year is the Berlin Marathon. Yeah. Well, the the risk here, I think, is a little bit that, that we're going to have a perverted sense of what marathons should be or can be. Uh, Nike, and, and not to Nike's discredit, I think, they argued all along that the point of this was to strip out the factors that impede runners from reaching maximum efficiency and add some that might improve efficiency. So, of course... The, the factor that impedes efficiency is that there's not a car in front of you well, with a giant clock on it. <laughs> right, but the idea was to see how fast could someone run a marathon if you take out the wind, if you take out inefficient shoes, if you improve nutrition and clothing. Um, and Nike proved that. You could shave three minutes off of the marathon by taking away these external hindrances and improving the things you can control. Um, but what we don't know, Dave, is what kind of pre-race data Nike accumulated about the runners, how they're going to analyze it, how it might be applied um, upon further study with other runners. And the same thing with the race data. We don't really know what they were measuring, right, in terms of drafting strategy, the performance of the shoes, the effect of hydration and nutrition during the race. Do you think that there are advances to be made so that runners under normal conditions, not the manufactured conditions like the race in, in Italy, will be able to use to improve times and get the marathon inching lower toward two hours? You know, I, I do. And I think um, I think one of the neat things about it, even though you know, I, I view it, I guess, differently than maybe someone who, who wasn't familiar with running, you know, like I said, I view it as sort of the industrial fan, but, um, at the same time, it is neat to say, okay, you know, sports science is so often behind, like in retrospect, it says like, well, of course the Fosbury flopped worked because it changes the center of mass. But at the time, like people were deterring Dick Fosbury from going over the bar backwards. Mm -hmm. So it's usually retrospective telling you why stuff that the best athletes and coaches already sort of figured out through trial and error. Um, uh, you know, and received wisdom and all those things. But in this case, we said, all right, well, if, if we have figured anything out scientifically about what helps a marathon, whether that's the surface, whether that's the shoes, whether that's the drafting, then when we put the best guy, um, in all these conditions, it should make a big difference. And it did. So that suggests that there are some things that we, that we know that work. And that's even for someone who is performing, like it would be really easy if you took a four hour marathoner to do it, right. To, to do that with, um, a guy who's already that good, I think it says, Hey, we legitimately know some stuff. And I think people will, will focus on that more. You know, I think maybe we'll see different, uh, for Berlin now, since that seems like, I think the last six world records have been set there and they use pace setters. I wouldn't be surprised if they train some pace setters to stay in that arrow formation now. Um, wouldn't be surprised to see, uh, you know, uh, cars that, that don't have diesel exhaust and, and, and things like that. Um, maybe cars with bigger clocks closer to the runners. Um, and, and certainly the shoes and a loop course. I mean, I think a loop course like London was a, is a really fast course, but it has a bunch of pretty tight turns. And when you're going at the speed those guys are going at, that's a really big deal. So I absolutely think there are some things, um, you know, that will, that can and will be applied. Last thought. Um, another thing that I think Nike should get credit for is manufacturing an event related to distance running in which the primary story isn't, are these guys doping? And I'm wondering, as somebody who's written a lot about doping in all sports, but especially in long distance running, whether you think that should be more of a question about um, the performance of these guys and whether, Ross Tucker mentioned this, Nike could have gotten a little more credit for their event if they had ratcheted up um, third-party testing of these guys and, and the run-up to um, the event in Italy. And let me just jump in there, too, and say that the running coach, Steve Magnus, whom you, Dave, are obviously familiar with from your reporting, he tweeted, amazed by Kipchoge, wish that in the current climate with such a big goal, Nike would have gone to the same lengths with anti-doping testing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because 
you know, nobody remembers that like two years ago, the Super Bowl MVP was suspended for a drug violation. But in but distance runners really care. I think the moat is the community that the most cares about um, um, doping. So it's a big deal. And I, I agree that Nike could have made a sort of a, a big show of that. I, I, I have I will say I have no idea what the truth is of what they did in the background at all. But I I would if I had to guess, I would guess that while not having third party testing, when Nike was doing all that testing on these guys and having access to their blood and their sweat and their saliva was probably looking at it really hard because I think the only way that you have a marketing fail with this event, it doesn't really matter what the guys run. Worst case, they all blow up, you know, they, and they probably still stayed on two hours for longer than anybody had before. You can do a rematch, whatever. The only way it's a real marketing fail is if um, it turns out that one of them like fails a drug test sometime soon. That's where it could be a marketing fail. And so my guess is knowing how the biological passport looks where you can sort of monitor blood is that they, as they were vetting athletes and, and following these guys is that they were taking a real, real hard look at that. But I think it would have been nice if they, um, you know, did it very openly and said, this is, this is really important to us. So we're kind of opening this up. Do you think, uh, someone else will try to do this? Well, there's two other projects ongoing already. One is with Adidas, but I think Adidas, last I checked, they had said, well, we're going to do it in a regulation race. <laughs> so that that would be interesting um, to see. And uh, then there's another sort of independent um, one going on with the group of scientists. So there's already two uh, going on. David Epstein is a writer for ProPublica, and he's the author of the book, The Sports Gene. Always great to have you on the podcast, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for After Balls and mention it at the top of the show. We're going to do sports reporters for our Slate Plus segment. The show's off the air after 29 years. And at the end of their show, they do something called Parting Shots. It was, I think, Stefan, an inspiration for how we end our show. No, totally. And for whatever you think of Mitch Album and Mike Lupica, the form of that show is kind of a model for what we do here. Um, We tried to do it differently, but clearly the structure talking about two or three topics and then having little monologues at the end, hats off to Mitch Album. I'll never say that again. Stefan, what is your parting shot? Well, I watched uh, the Breaking 2 race on the Nike live stream on Twitter. And as I mentioned earlier, I was totally into it. It was quintessentially Nike, sleek, perfectly tailored, with enough sports being committed to make you occasionally forget the avalanche of swooshes and enough sports TV production to make you occasionally forget that this was a corporate production complete with hired Hollywood talent. Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart sucked. His jokes were flat. His interviews were Oscars, red carpet, banal. Nike must have thought that two hours of watching a bunch of dudes run behind a Tesla might be boring instead of what it was, totally mesmerizing. But Hart's dumb, self-centered banter did echo a small but annoying segment of the Twitter feed scrolling below the live stream. He made the race about himself. It is a peculiar feature of humans that we need to refract the achievements of the highest forms of our species through the narrow lens of our own experiences, especially in sports. On the one hand, it's a defense mechanism for our own insecurity and inferiority. I could kick an extra point. I could make that three-foot putt to win the Masters. I could hit a big league fastball. On the other, it's a self-absorbed way of demonstrating awe, the kind that my daughter used to exhibit when she was like eight or nine, and we'd be watching the Olympics, and she'd say, there's no way I could do a backflip on a balance beam, or if I tried to do ski jumping, I would totally crash. 
When someone's eight, you literally can't say no fucking shit. You're not a physical freak and an obsessive monomaniac. But you'd think adults watching one of the greatest long distance runners in the history of humankind performing one of the most remarkable acts in running history would not be surprised that they can't do what Eliud Kipchoge can, that comparing their mortal acts of exercise to his would be absurd. And yet, let's read some tweets. First, tell us about your pedestrian race times. I broke two hours for a half. I want to go run now. Those two-hour marathoners are amazing. And to think I run a half marathon in 2.15. Unbelievable effort from Elliot Kipchoge. Only a minute slower than my half marathon personal best. All right, how about some humble bragging? Our fastest miles are John, 459, and Lizzie, 523. Hard to fathom their 434 pace for a marathon. All right, next category. I can't believe how impressive the world's best marathoners are compared to me. If I set the treadmill at this pace, I would fly off into the closet. Their leg turnover is insane. I need to work on my form. Wish I could look this relaxed while running. All right, please, please tell us your running plans, everybody. My goal is to run one to two miles injury-free. Races will come in time. I'm going to run a marathon next year. My goal is to not break anything. Maybe somebody can make a stupid comparison for us. Took me two hours to drive a car 26 miles yesterday in L.A. Maybe someone else can make the same stupid comparison. I can't even drive 26.2 miles in two hours and 25 seconds in L.A. rush hour traffic. All right, before we go, tell us some more about you. These guys are running twice as fast as my best time. Just incredible. Actually, it's not incredible at all because you are literally the most average distance runner in the world and they are literally the best fucking runners in the world. Stop comparing yourselves to elite athletes, everybody. That's it. You forgot the worst category of comparison, which is I'm better than all the players in the WNBA. Yeah, if there had been a woman marathoner, we would have certainly heard that. Uh, Thank goodness. We're going to interrupt our usual order now for a special parting shot. Adam Willis, our intern, is in the studio. It's his last week, and he is going to parting shot for us. Hello, Adam. Hello. And what do you have on the parting shot menu for us today? Um, A New Yorker profile last year titled Julio Jones' Aspiring Robot highlighted the Atlanta Falcons receiver's narrow precision and perfect repetition. Detroit Lions wide receiver Calvin Johnson was nicknamed Megatron for his powerful stature and inhuman athleticism. Memphis Grizzlies coach Dave Fisdale recently hypothesized that Kawhi Leonard of the San Antonio Spurs doesn't have to breathe and bleeds antifreeze. While they may be tongue-in-cheek, these comparisons constitute some of the highest praise in sports, reserved for the elite competitors who operate with robotic efficiency. Clay Thompson of the Golden State Warriors is also a tight-lipped athlete of extraordinary precision, and like those other guys, has received similar analogs throughout his career. Fans of Thompson's game like to joke about his automatonic qualities, his three-point shooting accuracy, and his lack of discernible emotion. His teammate Zaza Pachulia said, I've seen him get emotional, like when he had 60 points. His tongue goes out a little, maybe on the 50th point. According to Warriors GM Bob Myers, Thompson is, quote, like the first Terminator, the one who doesn't say anything. But many a true word hath been spoken in jest, and I have my suspicions that Thompson is a bona fide cyborg. The evidence is substantial. For one, Thompson looks almost inhumanly generic. The Ringer's Jason Concepcion wrote recently that Thompson looks like an engineer from Prometheus, an Easter Island statue, and the public broadcasting logo merged in a teleporter. My guy looks like the laziest police sketch ever. Clay's face is so blank that the image search of his video game face returns, quote, man, wrote Concepcion. In other words, Cyborg Thompson isn't disguised in a particularly convincing human likeness. While Steph Curry is hailed for his accuracy from deep, his shooting form is erratic and unmistakably human. Thompson, on the other hand, shoots with textbook form, and you get the sense that he could hit three-pointers with his eyes closed. ESPN Sports Science tested this idea. After shutting off the lights in the gym, Thompson went 8 for 10 from 3 in total darkness. The only explanation? Sonar. Those vacant eyeballs are just placeholders in his head. After a 41-point performance against the Timberwolves earlier this season, Thompson credited his success to the weather. The sunshine's been so good to me, he said. Whenever I go outside, it just puts me in a great mood. That's right. Thompson admitted that he is solar-powered. And when a fan approached Thompson last month and asked him to sign a toaster oven, he stared at the contraption curiously, as if recognizing a long-lost relative. 
A brief slip-up in a post-game interview last week may be the final piece of androidal evidence that my theory needs. After the Warriors beat the Utah Jazz in Game 1 of the Western Conference semifinals, Thompson answered reporters' questions as he always does, with all of the personality of Amazon Alexa. Which makes sense, because if Thompson is indeed a robot, of course his verbal functioning consists of an endless loop of programmed banalities. But as the questioning progressed, Thompson's wiring began to short-circuit. His eyes glazed over, his language failed, sentences trailed off into silence, and he stammered like a glitchy computer game. You could see the pale green glow of his inner machinations fading behind those animatronic eyes. Well, I mean, we have such talented players, I think every time we get a shot up down the court, it works to our advantage. And uh, if we take care of the ball, you know, it's going to be, you know, the, the, I don't know, I'm sorry. <laughs> But Thompson quickly recovered from the 404 error in a way that provided further evidence of his artificial intelligence form when a reporter threw him a softball question. Okay, so the last couple of games yeah. you've only had seven turnovers and it's made a big difference. Yeah, I mean, huge difference. Turnovers are terrible. That's right. Turnovers are terrible. The gears clicked back into place, his hard drive rebooted, his cyborg gaze refocused on the blank space before him, and Clay Thompson's mission of intergalactic basketball dominion was back online. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. That was great, Adam. Thank you. Josh, what's your parting shot? I've got a tennis situation I want to talk about this week. All the Grand Slam tournaments give out wild cards to various players, and there's a controversy brewing slash burbling over whether Maria Sharapova, who just finished up her 15-month suspension for taking the drug meldonium, whether she'll get a wild card into the qualifying tournament for the French Open. But I want to talk about another player who's definitely getting a wild card into the main draw of the French. He's an American who won the French Open wild card challenge by accumulating the most points in various warm-up events, including winning the Savannah Challenger tournament over the weekend. He's 25 years old. He's from Tennessee. He overcame a 2014 surgery on his hip. He is a career-high number 114 in the ATP rankings this week. And I have been saving his name for last because his name is why I am afterballing about him. The name, my friends, is Tennis Sandgren, and the first name is spelled T-E-N-N-Y-S. Stefan is nodding knowingly. Future Name of the Year nominee. I'm surprised he hasn't been nominated already because his name has been the subject of much intrigue. It's very for... possible he has been. I haven't checked the, the, uh, the, the name of the year at Gmail forum. All right. So he's 25 years old. In 2007, he was already uh, making a name for himself grown. On the tennis scene, uh, there was an article that noted that his name didn't have anything to do with the sport of tennis. It wasn't like his uh, parents were like, uh, you know, the naming their kid Espen after ESPN or some dumb shit like that, that it was actually a family name. Um, his great-grandfather was born in 1896 and had the name Tennis, his mother said in this story. There hadn't been another Tennis Sandgren in the family until my tennis was born in 1991. She is a coach and homeschool teacher. Uh, 2011, Tennis said the same thing. It's my great-grandfather's name. His name was Tennis. He didn't play tennis at all. It's not related to tennis. It's Swedish. And my parents really liked it. It's definitely unique. That's for sure. So you might think this guy's name is Tennis. He plays tennis. I'm really going to root for this guy. I would advise you to look at his Twitter feed first. Maybe do like an advanced search on the words Hillary and Trump. and Really do a deep dive before you decide if you really want to get invested in the career of Tennis Sandgren, but I'll let you do that on your own time. What I'm going to do for you here today in this afterball is tell you these are some other athletes to look out for in other sports. I've been the public service. I've been searching through uh, birth records in various states. I've done a lot of research, and here are some some up and coming guys that I think you should be aware of. There's Baseball Stevenson. His first name though is spelled. Baseball, B-A-S-E-B-A-L, only one L. Mm -hmm. Little variation there. There's also Basketball Martin. That's B-A-S-C-E-T-B-A-L-L. Just for your records. Uh, there's Soccer Gleason, S-A-W-K-E-R. Hockey Bingham, uh, that's H-O-K-K-K-K-K-E-Y. I think he was drafted in the uh, 
the WPL Bantam League up there, WHL, whatever it's called. No, you're thinking of hockey being um, H-O-K-K-K-K-K-K. Oh, right. K-K. Right, right, right. E-Y. And finally, there's table tennis Tom Janovich. Uh, table is spelled like table, and this time the Y and the E in tennis are transposed. Mm-hmm. So it's T-Y- N-N-E-S. I want to take this opportunity to announce the birth of my my second child, Team Handball Fatsis. That's T-M-M-H-N-D-B-L-L. Thank you for contributing. I was wondering if this was the dumbest afterball of all time, and I just, I feel very supported right now by Stefan Fatsis. That's spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N. When you email Stefan, make sure it's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. We'd love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern was Adam Willis. Thank you so much, Adam, Thank for you, Adam. your tenure on the show. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.